Coming up, what an excellent day for Linda Blair. folks, and welcome to Minute 17 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist minute by terrifying minute. My name is Lester Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And we'll be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. Okay, so our minute begins with Chris watching the two priests. And it ends with Reagan, her daughter, talking about a horse she saw. Hmm. But we have one more member of this household, one more member of the Blatty Bunch to meet before we see Reagan. Um, and that is Sharon Spencer, played by Kitty Wynn, who is probably best known for her role in uh, Panic in Needle Park, where she mm-hmm. played alongside uh, Al Pacino uh, as Helen. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Sharon is Chris's secretary slash uh, assistant. Uh, she's also Reagan's tutor. Uh, which comes up later. The book uh, says that she's been with the family for three years at this point. So she also traveled with them to Washington, um, where she has met and fallen in love with someone referred to only as the horseman in the book. And no past Lester from college, not the horse man, as you originally thought before you read, before you heard the audiobook. You idiot. Is that like, oh, mom and dad, I, I'm dating someone, but you have to be careful. He, he's, a, he's a horse man. He's a horse man, right? So why don't you just have him over for dinner, honey? It's like, uh, uh, so, so, Mr. Horseman, uh, you know, it's like, what do you think of the current president? <laughs> right. Don't talk uh, politics, religion, or oats. Or oats, right. Yeah. When you're don't, meeting your girlfriend's parents. Don't get him started on oats, right? <laughs> we'll be here for two hours. <laughs> you know, the opposite of that, right? So John Stone has this bit um, on The Daily Show where he was uh, he was saying that if Spider-Man were Jewish, it, would be, uh, it wouldn't be Spider-Man, it would be Spider-Man. Oh, I've heard that. Yeah. <laughs> Leo, yeah Spider-Man. Leo Spider-Man. <laughs> My God, I love John Stewart. He's so awesome, and he's so awesome now. He's consistently awesome. Yeah, he's back in in nakedly political form, where he mm-hmm. doesn't do stand up anymore. He just does congressional hearings. Yep, yep. <laughs> that's where he does his work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so uh, so this is what Reagan is talking about when she says they met this man who let her sit on uh, his horse. Uh, this is the guy that Sharon is dating. He's like a lawyer or something, I think. Oh, you know, um, I don't want to dwell too much on Sharon, I suppose, but it's yeah. interesting, right? Like how you could, if when it's really well drawn, you're like, oh, tell me more about that. So does Sharon yeah. date this guy only when they're visiting in Washington? Has he, she only started dating him while they've been in Washington? Because she doesn't live in Washington. She lives in right, LA. right. Yeah. Um, how does it I'm, work, Sharon? How do you make how, it work? How, what are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, I wasn't going to get into this, but fuck it. Let's get into it. Um, <laughs> but no, Sharon, Sharon is a very interesting character in the book. She's kind of um, the foil to Chris in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, she does uh, move out of the house after a while. And she's like living in uh, a hotel room that uh, Chris pays for. Oh. Um, so she's kind of like, you know, she's got her own space and she can, uh, you know, um, have this horseman over, you know. Um <laughs> Because uh, you know, it's you a very know, inclusive hotel that lets yeah, horse yeah. mans in. Yes, right. You know, it's a it's a very. And I would say, I would say, Keenan, Keenan, I would say that uh, you know their relationship is very stable. <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay. All right. All right. It's horse puns. But no, it, like another thing, another thing about Sharon is that she's just as skeptical as uh, Chris is and has painted to be so far. Um, 
Sharon is very, very into like all of this new age, all of these, all of these different kind oh. of like religions and faiths. And she's kind of like in the book, she's jumping from one to another. And we get a little bit of exposition about how like currently at the time of uh, this story, like when this is happening right now with the horsemen and everything, um, she's really into like transcendental med- meditation, mm-hmm. right? And uh, Chris and Sharon kind of like share this dialogue about it where you kind of get the idea that uh, Chris is a little bit annoyed by it. Um, mm-hmm. She's a little bit uh, – I mean she is skeptical but she's also kind of just like um, she she can't let well enough alone. She's curious but she also wants to to be like – you know, it's like why why do you do that stuff, Cher? Like, and, and Sharon is like, it's like, well, it gives me peace of mind and mm-hmm. she's like, right – and she's she's kind of like like picking it apart like maybe in in not in a mean way but in a way in the same way that she she looks at her scripts right right she's right. trying to find the truth she's trying to find like okay what's the thing that I can grasp what's the thing that I can hold on to and which is just so ironic because like when you're talking about faith there's really nothing you can grasp right it's 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 more mm-hmm. of a it's it, I mean that's what faith is right it's the opposite of like knowing for sure right right and a lot of my you know I'm an atheist but a lot of my mm-hmm. atheist friends who are, are more militant than I they will ask their friends that and maybe they won't say it to their friend to their faces I have I have nice friends but you know that <laughs> idea of like oh I do it because of this any answer is like well if you're doing it because it gives you peace or stability or you're doing it because it calms you then that's not really faith because you know Mm. you should do that for no reason or whatever um but people's answers about why they why they do their their faith traditions why they do their practices like um that's varied and um you know it's legitimate yeah and it's interesting that we get like you hear a lot about um uh religious people uh kind of like pushing their faiths onto onto uh non-believers or people of other religions right and that certainly is like that is a that is a, a big problem but um there's not a lot of talk about like like you say uh militant atheists just kind of like pushing uh you know their their atheism onto it's like well why you know like just challenging um you know people's beliefs in this way that's kind of like you know it's like you don't need to do that yeah you see you see that a lot um yeah you know, and and you know when I when I say now see it a lot now it's it's Twitter and Facebook which aren't real discussions but if someone posts something about God or whatever and someone has to say well God's not real so I'm like well you know <laughs> do we really have to say that here right right world? but anyways um I think Sharon Sharon I've been more interested in recently I've always found her an interesting performance an interesting character um, I haven't seen the sequels to The Exorcist I don't like necessarily seeing sequels that I am afraid of will will tamper my love of the original. Right, right. And uh, Ellen Burstyn has said that she will not do a sequel to The Exorcist until recently. And so in one of The Exorcist sequels, it's there's no Chris. It's just Sharon who is basically taking over the role of the Chris character, yes. taking care of Reagan while Sharon is away. Yeah, yeah. Um, I And that, I believe, is The Exorcist 2, The Heretic, mm-hmm, yeah. which I saw very, very young, very long mm-hmm. time ago. Um, I don't remember much. I mean, that's a whole other can of worms, I guess, um, or can of locusts, whatever <laughs> you want to call it. Yeah, like I won't see Rocky, the Rocky sequels, because Rocky is one of my very, very favorite movies, like top 10 favorite movies for me. And I just know that they don't have a strong of a reputation. Um, right. So I have seen Rocky Balboa, which was separate enough <laughs> that I was like, okay, that's a different movie. And um, Creed, which is a whole other thing. But yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm afraid of seeing Rocky 2, 3, 4, and 5, even though some people um, legitimately say that 3 is really fun or that 2 is mm. really cool. Like, like I just don't – I have my Rocky. It's done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't need the sequel. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, to go back to – we were talking uh, Exorcist 2. That is actually the first time that Pazuzu is named as 
the demon that is oh, in the oh, first uh-huh. story. Um, and we were talking again, I think, uh, before about how we see Pazuzu here. We, we hear mention of Pazuzu in the books, but it's never like confirmed, oh, you're that demon I saw a picture <laughs> of in that book, or you're that demon I, you know, saw the statue of. It's just kind of like, like these two things exist in this in this movie or in this book, but so yeah. in our film, you would have to know that the statue was of Pazuzu. Right, the statue is definitely a, a depiction of Pazuzu. Yeah, yeah, but it's you have devilish. To be a real nerd. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but it's devilish enough to where you can be like, okay, this is a this is a devil, or it could be the devil. Who knows, right? right. Um, and that's certainly what I thought when I when I saw. Uh, oh, this, if I could um, like early on. Yeah. kick out another sequel real quick, Halloween. Okay. <laughs> so oh, I haven't yes. seen the sequels to Halloween. Halloween feels like a complete film for me. And I understand that some of them might be stronger, what have you. But I really, um, in, in a class once I was sitting in on from another professor, um, they, were, they were talking about Halloween and they, were, they had just seen Halloween. I loved it, you know, and I loved this discussion they were having. And then one of my students, who's a friend of mine, says that, oh, you know, in Halloween, um, Michael Myers is trying to kill his sister, uh, Laurie Strode. And I was like, that's not in this movie. And I like had a fit <laughs> in this other professor's class. I was like, that's not in this movie. Like that there's no mention of that anywhere. That Laurie Strode is her is his sister. That is in the other movie. You can't you don't retroactively like add on things from the next movie or whatever, which might might not be fair. Maybe you should be able to like add retroactively in the whole, you know, cinematic universe of Halloween. But I right. threw a fit in someone else's class that I wasn't <laughs> even the professor for. And I was like, oh, that's really embarrassing how much that that actually triggered me into having this fight with this kid. But I mean, you know, these like, like that's what movies do for us, right? They affect <laughs> us. They, you know, you know, I, I like we were talking about I mean, you're talking about sequels, right? We're talking about Star mm-hmm. Wars and, and uh, Darth Vader. I hope everybody already knows this, <laughs> um, you know, Darth Vader being Luke's father, mm-hmm. but that not being kind of like in the plan for you know, when they made right. episode four, right? You want to believe it's part of the plan, but then you have these discrepancies like that Luke and, and Leah kiss each other, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no um, way that he did that while he planned for them to be siblings. That's impossible, right? Precisely, right? right. You'd have to be, um, you know, a certain type of person for that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, also to bring up Star Wars as well, is that you, you were talking about like being affected by uh, how you feel about the first Halloween movie and everything mm-hmm. like that. Keenan, I have, I have not seen a movie or a, a collection of movies as much as Star Wars, like mm-hmm. touch people in this almost religious way yeah. that mm-hmm. we talk about. I mean, you know, we 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 say that it's like a, a modern mythology, right? It's almost like a modern, um, like religious text. So mm-hmm. much so that, like, when the prequels came out or when these, uh, you know, sequels came out, like people were up in arms and they were like, "That's not what Luke would do," or mm-hmm. "That's not how you know uh, uh, Anakin would be." It's like I know my Star Wars, and it's like, right. well, like. Episodes four, five, and six are a movie, are movies, mm-hmm. and right. episodes one, two, and three, and uh, seven, eight, and nine are also movies. Like, what's mm-hmm. the, you know, it's like not, you know, one of them isn't like written on a stone tablet or, you know, like actually <laughs> happened or something well, like but that. They like, did write a sequel to the religion that was written on stone tablets. So, yeah, no, no. so. <laughs> there you go. And and that's so actually, you, you and I, we're, we're on the same track. Okay, like, yeah. I, like, no, that's what I was going to go with. <laughs> like, no, they, like you could make the argument for like, you know, all of religion, right. About Mm -hmm. it being like a continuation or a fan fiction of, of this, of this earlier thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, we talk about, uh, there was this big, uh, hullabaloo, uh, centered around like finding the gospels of Judas or the gospels of, of Mary Magdalene. And people are like, no, that's not, you know, and it's like, well, uh, Mm -hmm. like we found them. So, Mm -hmm. so what do we do 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 now? Yeah. Like what do you know, like we have to, we have to acknowledge them. No, no, we're not going to acknowledge it. It's Mm -hmm. like, so it's like, okay, so I just decide what's canon and what's not and right 
and what's not canon, even though like there is actual like records of it. We're just, we're just not going to talk about like what's going on. And you, uh, have you heard this, what the kids say nowadays of head canon? Mm. That you oh, just, yes. you just you have to, it's basically how you mediate things in your head, which we've been doing in movies since the beginning mm. of movies. Like when you're accepting that, oh, the movie says there's a, a happy ending and you know that you're not supposed to think there's a happy ending. Mm-hmm. And you sort of mediate and go, oh, no, that's the bullshit they had to add on for the studio system. But this is how the movie really ends. Right. Yes. So, yeah, I have heard like headcanon and it's mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, that's well, that's my headcanon now. Right. Right. <laughs> You know, you could, you can register your religion on the Australian census as Jedi. I think that starts as a joke, but then more and more people are like, that's the closest thing I understand to a faith tradition. And so, yeah, that'll be, I'm a Jedi. So some people I think are, are facetious about it, but I think not for a lot of other people. How much of this stuff started out as a joke and just kind of... <laughs> <laughs> this thing just got a little out of hand. Just, you know what? Um... <laughs> <laughs> the second Easter comes along and people are like, okay, this isn't All right. funny anymore. This is, yeah, you know what? I was on board for the first one, but yeah. Uh. <laughs> so anyways, we have Sharon looking over and then uh, I like I like it. We have another shot of Ellen Burstyn coming around the corner and, and we see her, you know, with her thoughts and her um, her gloomy, you know, uh, inner thoughts. And then when she sees Sharon, she puts on maybe not a, a fake face like she was with the Halloween people, but certainly she changes her um, her mood very quickly. So we get both of them in one shot again. Yeah. And I like I didn't write this down in the notes, but, uh, you know, Sharon's like, how'd it go? And mm-hmm. and she, what did she say? She's like, oh, you know, it was all right. It was like the Walt Disney version the Disney of the, version, Ho, Chi Minh, the Ho Chi Minh story. The yeah. Ho Chi Minh story. Yeah. <laughs> this is going back to going back to all that. Um but yeah, I, I I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent about Disney because mm. that's one of my specialties there. But ah. um, but Disney had uh, had just recently died, and there had been new criticism about Disney. So we're in a more critical um, area of Walt Disney than we are, say, today, where now we think of him as this master filmmaker, and and we have all these um, wonderful thoughts about him. He had been going through um, this reevaluation, and the book about his life, the first major book about his life after he died, was by Richard Schickel and was called The Disney Version. And it was like, that phrase was like, oh, it's, you know, the Disney version of Snow White, which is distinct from the real version of Snow White, the Disney version of Cinderella. And Schickel was like comparing that to like the Disney version of America, the Disney version of American history, the Disney version of reality, and how it's Ah. all worse and shittier. Interesting. It's all fake and and not real and and cleaned up. Yeah. Oh, that that adds like a whole new level to what she just said, right? Mm-hmm. Because audiences audiences uh, uh, who are first seeing this film will understand that in a way that we don't. Right. Because now we're in a phase where we look at the classic Disney movies and we're like, oh yeah, that is that is the version. Right. So yeah. now we uh, now we say the grim version of Snow White to yes. distinguish because when someone in real in our everyday life says Snow White, they, we're thinking about the Disney version. We're thinking, yeah, interesting. Um, okay, so in this scene, we get another little glimpse of how famous Chris McNeil is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sharon hands her an invitation to dinner at the White House <laughs> and is not a big party either, just five or six people, according to Sharon, to which Chris responds far out and tosses the invite back onto the table like it's nothing. <laughs> so, Keenan, I've always been a little bit puzzled by this. Like, we know she's an actress and we know she's a pretty famous actress, but <laughs> the White House thing always seemed, I don't know, like a, a little excessive. It, it was in the book too. And I just remember thinking, okay, I get it. Like I, I have a couple thoughts about why we go to these lengths to show how famous she is, but I wanted to see if, if you uh, uh, had any insights. Oh, see my, my, I was wondering about whether um, this was specifically about the Nixon White House, like how much we're supposed to be in 1973 or not. Ah. Like we're clearly in modern day, but is it like, oh, you know, like, like, um, 
we, we, I don't know how long in the future people were listening to this, but we just got out of a Trump administration where everyone in entertainment went out of their way to like be sure that they weren't accidentally supporting uh, Trump. So there, you know, the, the Super Bowl teams didn't go and see him. <laughs> um, no one, no one performed at his inauguration, like that kind of thing. So we're not quite in that in that realm there, but certainly, like, is this supposed to be like oh a Nixon thing? Um, oh, maybe in the yeah. screenplay when we're talking, Chris and, and uh, Sharon are talking. They have digs about new math which would have been a very 1970s idea. So like I, I couldn't even compute the bus affair for, with new math, right? And that's cut out of the movie because, um, you know, probably a good thing because it dates it a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if we're trying to like, you know, undate the film by not mentioning that it's Nixon in the White House. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. Um, so I also have uh, two thoughts. Uh, about this, about why this is kept in, because yes, this is this is one of the things that spans the Trinity, folks. This is um, this is in the book, this is in the screenplay, this is and this is in the final uh, cut of the film. Um, this this presidential uh, dinner invitation. So first, some things are going to happen very soon that, for the sake of the family and for the sake of everyone involved, need to be kept a secret. So. Her being so much in the public eye adds a little bit uh, to the tension, I think, right? How does someone who gets invited to a small dinner party at the White House hide a possessed girl and not get found out and not have, um, you know, uh, ha- not have it be in all the papers and not have her daughter taken away from her, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's that. I think, I think that might be like adding to the tension of like, we got to keep this a secret. Right. Um, and I'm sure I'm the very last person to figure that out, but whatever. <laughs> Uh, but also, and more importantly, this letter, this presidential invite that for everyone else would be such a big deal, such an honor, Mm -hmm. uh, like a highlight of their career, of their life. Chris McNeil tosses it aside. Mm -hmm. Why? So she can go see her daughter. This is Chris McNeil, the mom, not Chris McNeil, the overblown superstar. Sorry, Mr. President, you'll just have to wait. <laughs> right. That's important, I think, for us, right, that, that she has to care about, like we were talking about earlier, like it's not that she is an aloof, distant mother. She's essentially playing the part of a, of a father or a husband and that she has to go and work. I'm talking about like traditional 70s, right, what we expected. But she is a loving breadwinner. She's not someone who's like, oh, I have to deal with my my freaking daughter who has, right, right. who's going to tell me about her day like I care, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so here now we have Reagan McNeil. Uh, played by Linda Blair. So, Keenan, I looked and it is surprisingly hard to find stuff on Linda Blair before this movie. This was her breakout role. After this movie, there is tons of stuff. This this film, for better or worse, gave her a place in the annals of cinema history. Mm-hmm. I think it's safe to say that this is the role everyone remembers her for. She is the face of this movie <laughs> in right. more ways than one. Um, and as the face of, of what some have called uh, and what many are still calling the scariest movie of all time, she's sort of become a a meme. Mm -hmm. Um, You may never have have seen The Exorcist, but I guarantee you've seen one of those like scary maze game pranks where Mm -hmm. her face pops up at the end, right? Every year around October, you can see uh, mannequins and dolls and uh, animatronic uh, displays with the demon Reagan face, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Linda Blair herself has made two parody movies one oh. with leslie nielsen we mentioned before called repossessed i I've might be right possessed yeah i don't know yeah. the other one is yeah yeah I, I think i saw like a little clip of it and i was like oh wow maybe, i think repossessed maybe... yeah it's, yeah it's um it's sad it's embarrassing um uh, <laughs> you know it, it's yeah. not leslie nielsen's best by far mm. and then and then um it, it, it does feel like a, an actor like you can't help but imagine like the actor who's forced to parody herself because she can't find work like that's right. what it just constantly feels like 
Yeah. So, so she is forever, forever connected with this movie after the fact, which people forget, like, you know, we, we joke about it. It is a testament to how good she is in this movie, right? I think people forget that you don't have the legacy that she has without first making an impact. And she absolutely did. But again, it's hard to find stuff before this film. Right. She's a model and, and mm-hmm. um, you know, she's not working in movies before this. Right, right. I think there was like a couple of like very small um, roles like in a TV series, mm-hmm. something like that. I know that uh, she was a child model slash actor uh, from age five. Um, she did stuff for Sears, JCPenney, Macy's, uh, a bunch of commercials, uh, apparently. Yeah, I found um, some pictures. You know, she's she's very blonde. She's very cute as a child. Um, uh, she has this really big round face and really big eyes. You could see why she would have um, done well as a, as a child model. At six years old, she was doing print ads for the New York Times and, get this, Kenan, riding horses. Mm-hmm. Something her character also loves to do, uh, and and that's actually so. That's actually one thing I, I uh, picked up on from uh, Wondery's Inside the Exorcist, and I later looked into uh, as well. Um, is that she always loved animals? Um, currently, right now, at age sixty three, she runs the Linda Blair uh, World Heart Organization for the rescue and rehabilitation of abused and abandoned animals. Again, lots of stuff after this film. But not a whole lot before. Yeah, I saw pictures of her with a chicken that she had helped hatch on set. She hatched a turkey oh. and a chicken on the side of The Exorcist. Oh, um, what? Oh, yeah. It's just so weird to, to see like that uh, that she could ha- that she could have a, an ordinary professional life on the set because the movie is so so shocking, and we assume that terrible things happened to her, and that it was um, people insist afterwards that she must have been traumatized by the film. She says that she wasn't, um, but yeah, she had a hard time becoming an actor outside of The Exorcist with this film. I. Think I think it's partially because of the nature of the exorcist, people wanting her to do the same thing over and over again, partially because, you know, she's a 13 year old girl and that's a really hard transition to make. Um, Very few people do like at the same time period um, or in Ellen Burstyn's next film after the exorcist that she wins the Oscar for Alice doesn't live here anymore. We have Jodie Foster in a supporting part and Jodie Foster is someone who could survive into adulthood, but most child actors uh, can't do that. Yeah, that's a sad kind of like story of Hollywood is yeah. that child actors. And you know, uh, but up. but you know, she seems relatively happy. She she goes to talk to people about the extras all the time. She doesn't say like, "Oh, I resent talking about being Reagan McNeil." That's not mm-hmm. how she feels. Mm-hmm. A lot of horror people are like that um actually where they um they love having horror fans and retiring, you know, at a young age relatively and and taking care of animals. That sounds pretty great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The biggest movie star of the 50s was uh, Doris Day, you know? Oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she um, she dropped out of films pretty quickly after the R rating came into into being because she just really couldn't connect with films anymore. Right. And she mm-hmm. had all these movies that were offered her that were R rated um, and or like The Graduate. She was the original choice to play uh, Mrs. Robinson, which wasn't mm-hmm. R rated, but was dirty. You know, it was filthy. And so she she eventually retired. And then for decades afterwards, she just spent all of her time and all of her movie star money. Um, yeah. Saving dogs. And that's what she was doing for the rest of her life. So not a bad yeah. life. Yeah, no. <laughs> Not at all. And, and I mean, like we joked about it, right? We joked about the parody, you know, repossessed and everything like that. Mm-hmm. But I also kind of like, I like that she can take this thing that, uh, you know, has, has been so big for everybody else and, and is like such a, uh, a big part that people remember her for and sort of, you know, like poke fun at it and, and, you know, smile and laugh along with everybody. And, and it's like, yeah, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm not taking myself, you know, so serious, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, Keenan, you, you mentioned before you were talking about like being traumatized and everything mm-hmm. like that. I do want to speak to something that does get brought up a lot. Uh, they say, uh, one of the reasons that this movie was so scary was the shock of 
seeing this, uh, or I guess seeing and hearing this 14 year old girl cursing and snarling and spewing green vomit and doing all these horrible things. Um, and I'm getting a couple of conflicting anecdotal stories about how much Linda Blair was let in on what she was doing, what was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, on second thought, I might be conflating her with and Friedkin's filming relationship with that of Kubrick and Danny Lloyd Mm -hmm. uh, in The Shining, because I know that Kubrick was uh, uh, very protective of Danny, sort of shielded him from the more uh, unsavory aspects of the film. Um, And I thought maybe it was the same way with Linda Blair. Um, I'm thinking uh, like specifically of, we haven't gotten to it yet, but the crucifix scene, um, which, yeah, we will get to later. But I thought I heard that Friedkin sort of like hid from her what was actually going on in that scene and it was filmed in a way that like she just thought she was like stabbing herself and, and that was it <laughs> and that right? that's 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 bad enough <laughs> right and that is, yeah that's bad enough right? right um but then there's this other story and i've and i've heard it from two different sources now mm-hmm. um where linda and her mom actually show up at friedkin's office unannounced again we have this like theme of like every every actor in this movie was like not the first choice and they just kind mm-hmm. of like appeared when you know when the need arose um so yeah so linda blair and and mom show up at friedkin's office and friedkin asks her asks linda if she knows the story and she's like sure i read the book it's about a little girl possessed by the devil who kills people mm-hmm. and in this story friedkin is sort of like shocked he's like taken aback and he proceeds to ask linda about the crucifix scene does she understand what's happening in it, happening in it right mm-hmm. and she's like oh yeah she masturbates with it sure and freaking is like wait you know what that is you've done it and she's like yeah haven't you <laughs> and so like these are two very different stories right in one linda is sort of shielded from the grosser aspects of the film and in the other she like knows all about it she's read the book she knows exactly what's going on and i don't know which one is true or if parts or uh, of both are true but just knowing what I know about Friedkin and knowing some of the stuff that he pulls later, oh, I'm, right. mm-hmm. I'm immediately suspicious whenever he tells a story, right? right? Whatever comes out of his mouth, right? Because both of these stories, he comes out of both of these stories pretty clean, right? As this non-corrupting uh, mentor. Right. And I, I didn't mean, want her to do it. She wanted, she asked to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, she already knew about it, right? right. Um, and I, I don't know. The, like the way he treats his adult actors just right. makes me wonder how he can have so much patience and compassion and uh, – respect and consideration for a child right but it is possible right it is possible that he he knew that you know when alan Alan burston is a professional adult actor linda blair is a semi-professional child actor and that there's Mm -hmm. a line there um it's also possible that as a 13 year old girl that she could both love horses and think about horses and be a horse girl and at the same time like understand um you know dark stuff about murder and you know um at this time, she's growing up when when there's murder and riots and assassinations and war on the TV during dinner, and, right? You know, so it's not it's not like that's impossible. Um, yeah, and it's also possible that she could. Um, again, this isn't the kind of actor that I am. I I don't know how to turn it on and off. I I am mm-hmm. unfortunately someone. When I was in a horror movie, I told my director I don't know how to have a nervous breakdown except to have a real nervous breakdown. So just look out for me. I, I, even if I don't want to, I think it's what I'm going to do. And you know, it's also possible that she's someone who could you know. Um, turn it off and just be like, Hey, I'm murdering people in one scene. And and then the next, and then when we're not filming, I'm going to be watching, um, you know, the flying nun on television watching Sally field. And that's okay. I could do both. Oh yeah. That, that was a thing. Yeah. She was, she would watch the flying nun like like, makeup sessions and stuff like that. Yeah. Or hatch a chicken. Hey, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Um, it's possible, but, but like that's, 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 you know, that's hard for us to parse in the narrative of it, but it's very possible that that could happen. 
Yeah. And we already know that stuff did happen, you know, on set, right? Like we have these famous incidents where, you know, uh, uh, she was injured, where Ellen Burstyn mm-hmm. was injured. Everyone in this movie came away with bruises or broken bones, right. thanks to Friedkin. So, you know, I don't know. A- like anything that he says anecdotally is immediately sus, as the yes. kids say. Yes. Um, but l- like you say, like it could be a little bit more innocent. Or that she just is a very strong actor. Like why do we why do we both want to say that this is one of the best performances by a child in film and also say that it could only come from her not knowing how to act. You're absolutely right. Yeah. It's like, oh, this poor child, this right. poor child, she didn't know what she was doing. So maybe, maybe give her a little bit more credit. Yeah. Right. Now there's one more little thing here I want to point out that, and that's this exchange between Chris and Reagan at the very end of our minute when Chris, Ellen Burstyn is asking Reagan, Linda Blair, uh, about the, the horse. There's like details about the horse. Uh, this dialogue has this uh, improvisational feel to it. I checked. It's not in the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, the screenplay is very close to the dialogue in the book here. And I wanted to see if you felt this too, Kenan. Mm-hmm. Ellen, Ellen Burstyn throws out uh, this question about um, the horse being a mare or a gelding. And you kind of see Linda Blair pause and she collects herself and she answers it all in character. And I wonder if this is freaking being like, yeah, let's just try a bunch of things. And and now this young actress has to like sort of keep up and, you know, and yes, and with uh, Ellen Burstyn. Yes, I think that that is how a lot of um, directing with child actors had started to develop yeah, um, in the 1970s of like, instead of trying to ask them to come to the adult professional level, like let's go down to the kid level and you get some really strong performances because of it. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think that's it for our minute, mm-hmm. Keenan. Um, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am Lester folks until next time, the, the power, power of, of the, the horse horseman compels, compels you. you. <laughs>